Chapter 17, Exodus, verse 1. The congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed from the desert of Sin on their journey by the command of Yahweh. They encamped in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. So the people quarreled with Moses. Now, let me go back up to chapter 17 and verse 1. On their journey by the command of who? And who are they mad at? Moses. Been there and done that. So the people quarreled with Moses. You've heard me talk about the, the dangerous sin of meology instead of theology in the church. This is an example of me, of me, 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 us, us, us. What about us? There's a grander picture here. What, what has Yahweh already done for them? Everything. Does, does Yahweh who created us not understand that after we have a belly full of manna and some good grilled bird at night, does he not understand that we need a little something to wash it down with? Of course he understands that. Right? They quarreled with Moses. They said, give us water that we may drink. Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? The people thirsted there for water. The people complained against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up from Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? We, we could have died back in Egypt. Well, short-sightedness, um, egocentric people and I don't it's just it's just part of the nature that for some reason very few of the elect of God ever overcome it's about me I'm hurt this didn't go my way or whatever well here we are and this is where these people are you're gonna make us die you've brought us to Brought us to our death. Now, here's a map, right? Yeah. And uh, let's see. Let me get my laser pointer started. We are right in here. Okay, we started back here. We've crossed the Red Sea. And we've come through here. And remember the, the refreshment at Elam? We left there. And we started getting some manna right in here. And now we're down here at Rephidim. Was it number seven? Yeah, number seven right there. Okay. Here is Canaan. Here's where they started. So, you know, you, you might think, well, why didn't they go that way? Because God didn't take them that way, number one. <laughs> number two, Moses knew, look at that. You see those little bumps? That's, that's mountains. That's pretty, my guess is that would be a tough trip, right? So you might ask the question, why didn't they go that way? 
because they didn't have no boats. And no, nobody knew how to float a boat. And that in itself is dangerous. I mean, how many ancient shipwrecks are there that have been discovered all along there? This is the will and the way of God because there's a lot of teaching to be done here. For 400 years, these people have sort of been in a static mode and they have come out as a great nation. When they get over here, they're going to get the law and then they're going to get the outfittings of the tabernacle and all that stuff and how to make sacrifices and so forth. That's going to be a great teaching, great, great instruction. So this is why we're going this way because I can deal with this better if I go this way, but if I went that way, I wouldn't be ready to deal with this right here. Not just that. They're about to fight their first war. Now you and I went through Joshua not long ago on Wednesday nights. And I'll, I'll probably in a minute ask everybody one at a time to stand up and tell me what was your favorite passage out of, <laughs> out of Joshua, knowing that everyone commits to memory everything that I do in the pulpit. <laughs> Which is? Are you sure? Which one? Let me ask you this question. Is the name of Joshua in Joshua 1-1? Meanwhile, back in the desert, we're right in here. And everything along the way, okay, think about this. The pillar of fire, the cloud, uh, crossing the Red Sea, the power of Yahweh, um, the, um, the protection of Yahweh, the direction that leads them in the path that gives them visual lessons as they go. And this will take a while. Um, as a matter of fact, they will have to repeat elementary school for 40 years here uh, when they get there, and then they'll die before they ever get to junior high school. Um, they're about to see, and of course, hear, hear the manna and the birds, the, the dust. The, uh, the lessons of the provision of Yahweh. What God is teaching His people, just trust me, that's a pretty easy job, but they're not trusting Him. They keep complaining. They keep doubting. The very fact that they would question and murmur and complain tells us that they doubt Yahweh. Even though He has done these tremendous things, they doubt. And think about the patience of Yahweh. Uh, we're going to see it more here in just a second. So here's where we are. That's where we started, and here's where we are, okay? All right, verse 4. Moses cried out to Yahweh, saying, What will I do for this people? Just a little longer, and they'll stone me. 
and that without benefits. <laughs> and Yahweh said to Moses, now here's the patience of Yahweh. I mean, time and time again, pass before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, take into your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now that staff was a great reminder, not just to Moses, but to everybody of the power that Yahweh demonstrated through the hand of Moses, his, de his designated leader. Verse 6, Behold, I will stand there before you on the rock in Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did so before the eyes of the elders of Israel. Now you see why the elders went. This wasn't some secret trick. You know, Moses had been the commander of the Egyptians and he would have known the area. He carried out military campaigns. He should have known where the supplies of water were uh, along the way and so forth. It had to be proven and shown that this was a miracle of God's provision for his people. So in the presence of the elders of Israel, he struck the rock and water came out of it. This water follows them all the way, you know. It never leaves them. Uh, so he named the place Massah, or testing, and Meribah, quarreling, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because of their testing Yahweh, saying, is Yahweh in our midst or not? Now, all of a sudden, here's this guy, Amalek. Just poof, there he is. Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Okay, let me go forward for one slide and use this map. Remember, this is where we are. We started up here, we came down here, crossed through, we came, and we're here. We're not to Mount Sinai yet, Rephidim. And here's Amalek, okay? Let me tell you about, well, let's go back. I'm talking about Amalek. Came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Amalek is a descendant of Esau. Fast forward to the book of Esther. There was a guy named Haman, Haman. He was called an Agagite. The Agagites were descendants of the Amalekites who were descendants of the Edomites or the descendants of Esau. Esau, Edom, Edom is like flesh, Edom. Esau represents the flesh. Amalek represents godlessness, worldliness, flesh, fleshiness. And Amalek is a problem for Israel. The, the, uh, the Jewish schools of rabbinical thought and, and, and seminary and so forth their scholars have quite a bit to say about Amalek. He's, he, is a, he is a manifestation of darkness and evil. Uh, he's, he's everything 
that, uh, that is opposed to the people of God. So here they come, back over here now. That's where they are. Here are the Moabites here, Ammonites. Edom is here, but a descendant of him is Amalek. Amalek comes down to attack Israel here at Rephidim. Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, now this is nothing new for Moses. Moses has been in campaigns of war before. Moses said to Joshua, pick men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of Elohim in my hand. Moses is going to intercede in prayer for his people. So there's another great lesson here. How God honors the how God honors the intercessory support of his people especially those who are God's ordained and chosen leaders, Moses. Now, men were chosen here for uh, the war, to go out and fight against Amalek. So th there's a lot to be thought of here, but in my mind, some time will pass here while Moses perhaps instructs or perhaps already has instructed Joshua on how to form a, uh, form a battalion for, for uh, war, how to, put his, how to put his people ready for war. Now, there were a lot of them. The book of Numbers tells us that, it's, that the fighting men what was it, from 20 to 50 or something like that? The, fight, the men of fighting age numbered 600,000. Uh, they're about 600,000. So you have a force here of 600,000 going to stand against Amalek. Now remember, and we'll see this more when we get to when the tabernacle is designed and so forth, but Moses in this trek, who has, who, un, who understands logistics and demographics and understands taking large companies of soldiers across long stretches of land. The historians tell us that what Moses did when he formed the, the march for the Israelites, putting, putting three tribes here, three all the way around. They were in a formation that was, that was the way, a formation that the Egyptians used. And it was easy for the Egyptians to maneuver so that they couldn't get outflanked. They could maneuver just like this or like this or like this or like this. Uh, and the, 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 they kept a strong force in the middle of the marching battalion. Now, when they get when they start marching, of course, the tabernacle is going to be in the middle of those twelve tribes, right in the center of it. But we 
We have to, I think, understand here that this is not just a ragtag group of people. These are people probably who have been, in, to some degree, have been in training in, in how to use certain kinds of weapons and how to organize themselves to defend themselves. You know, there's an old saying, he who attacks must vanquish. He who defends must merely survive. So you, it's easier to defend the place than it is to attack it. Now let's look back at this again. Amalek is up here. Amalek's got to go on the attack. So there's, there's this problem of logistics. Uh, there's a problem of them coming a long way and engaging the Israelites here at, uh, at Rephidim. So when Moses says, pick men for us, go out and fight against Amalek, we're, we're looking at an army of 600,000 men. And we're looking at men who have, who understand what their part is in the battle and probably have been practicing with their weapons because the journey of the people of God is never without its battles. So we, we put on the whole armor. Now, Moses adds to that how he will intercede on top of the hill but more than interceding, he's going to have the symbol of the power of Yahweh in his hand. This is a great thing. Amalek didn't have that. Joshua did as Moses had told him to fight against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur ascended to the top of the hill. Do you know what Hur's name, Hur's son's name was? Ben, ben Hur. <laughs> son of Hur. That's, okay. All right. I couldn't help myself. Moses, Aaron, and Hur ascended to the top of the hill. I'm sorry. What? Her. Never hear <laughs> Have we ever heard of her before? <laughs> well, she gets around, I'll tell you. No, no, I don't think so. Uh, but he's obviously somebody important, right? <laughs> well, you hear more of Joshua and you know Moses, but I've got to go back and study it. It may be Aaron's son. I can't remember right off the top of my head. And while I do it, I'm sure people are going to get on their phones and go. <laughs> <laughs> You can, you can contribute to the, to the study here. Uh, ascended to the top of the hill. Okay, so here we are looking at that again, and now we're going to pass on by. It came to pass that when Moses would raise his hand, Israel would prevail. When he would lay down his hand, Amalek would prevail. Now Moses' hands were heavy, so they took a stone and placed it under him, and he sat on it. Now, Moses had been standing, holding his hands up, and one of, them had a, one of them had a staff in it. Maybe, maybe we should have all handed out sticks and just did this and see how long we could last. I don't, standing, not sitting, but standing. Um, and so, obviously, when he would begin to weaken a little bit, the lesson from Yahweh is the importance of, of the interceding prayer 
of Moses and, and, and those who were supporting him in his intercession. Uh, supported his hands, one from this side and one from that side. So he was with his hands in faith until sunset all day long. Now you think about that. My guess is he would have been sitting on that rock and, you know, Aaron on one side and Hur on the other. And he would say, he would say you know what? My hands are going to sleep, man. I can't feel my hands. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's probably what would have happened, right? But it didn't stop him. And, and they kept holding his hands up. Verse 13, Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. That's a great thing. These people are going from, as a nation, going from infancy to a force to be dealt with just in a matter of weeks because of the design and power and will of God. So Amalek was defeated by Joshua, the edge of the sword. He always said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in the book and recite it into Joshua's ears that I will surely obliterate the remembrance of Amalek from beneath the heavens. Okay, so, so the books of Moses are being written Something would have been preserved somehow, in my view. We go back to Genesis, and the, the, the you know, this is the generation of heavens and the earth. This, the Hebrew word means this is the record, uh, this is the record of Adam and his generation. This is the record of Seth and his generation. I think there were four or five of those uh, journals from Genesis that goes all the way back to Adam. In my view, somehow, whatever God wanted to have been preserved was, was preserved. And it might be that the people of Israel had that as the only Bible they could have had in their time. Um, because we have that record in the book of Moses and it says this is the, this is the journal, this is the record of this, you know, so that, I mean, if I take the Bible as what it says, so that means this is the record. This is it. Somebody had to write it down. It had been preserved. But continuing on in that here, verse 14, Yahweh says to Moses, write this down. I will surely obliterate the remembrance of Amalek from beneath the heavens. Then Moses built an altar. And he named it Yahweh, 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 Yahweh of Banners, right? Which a banner, you know, you raise a, a banner for victory. And he, he dedicated that ceremony at the altar to Yahweh Nisi. Now we've already sent, well, when we were in, when we were in 
Genesis, we saw, you know, that Yahweh was Yahweh provider and, and other. Now we have Yahweh, Vic, Yahweh victorious, Yahweh victorious in battle of banners. That's what a banner is. It's a, uh, it's a victorious standard that's raised. So now the people of God can keep learning. They keep learning about the power of Yahweh. They consider a great victory. Amalek obviously was very confident in his ability to stop the Israelites. Uh, of course, they're stirred by the hatred that Satan has put in the hearts of the Edomites. Uh, and it's, it's just darkness against light. These people commanded, their army commanded by Joshua in this case, interceded for by Moses, carry the promise of the Christ. Uh, and they're on the way to the promised land. So it's, it's, you know, for us, it's a no-brainer, but for Amalek, they don't believe. Even though Esau, their forefather, was there when, uh, when God chose Jacob, uh, when Isaac gave Jacob the blessing. Uh, but this, this unbelief of the heart continues on in the Edomites and the, Amalek, uh, the, the, the sons of the descendants of Amalek, the Amalekites, who, are, who illustrate and who are the metaphor of evil and darkness and flesh and world, the world, Opposing the promise of Christ, opposing, opposing the people of God. Uh, this thing, you know, this thing continues all the way through the Old Testament. And it continues into the New Testament era and into the age of the church. The church in many ways suffers. I mean, you and I can read, there's more than just the church that's in America. Uh, they're suffering in China. Greatly suffering. They're, they lose property rights. They lose their rights to have a job. They have their houses leveled. Um, the Christians in Africa are being beheaded. Their church or churches are being leveled. Their young women are being stolen, sold on a, a slavery block and, and horribly mistreated. Um, and today... Christians in America are being threatened and intimidated uh, by people. So this, you know, Amalek is alive and well in more than just, in just what we see here. But what does Yahweh promise? I will obliterate the remembrance of Amalek from beneath the, uh, the heavens. But there's a warning. Here it is in verse 16, and I think this carries on to us what I just spoke about here. And he said, because Yah, which is the eternal one, that's the, that's the shortened version of Yahweh. Because Yah has sworn that there shall be between Yahweh and Amalek war from generation to generation. So Yahweh will have war with Amalek 
from generation to generation until, back to verse 14, everything about Amalek is, is obliterated. So, you know, you can carry this through time. We mentioned Haman a while ago. He, 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 he was an Amalekite, as an Agagite. He, he was an Amalekite. Um, uh, the, the Assyrians who invaded, uh, the Babylonians who came in and ravaged the whole land and carried them off as, as uh, slaves. Uh, on, on from there, those people who surrounded them when they were rebuilding the walls and they threatened them and intimidated them. Uh, when Zerubbabel led the people back, um, the intertestament period, the, the enemies of the Jews who attacked incessantly and all the time in the Middle East. In the New Testament era, King Herod was going to kill the Christ. He was not going to let the King of the Jews be born uh, all the way to the crucifixion. And then in the journey and, and way and life of the church even today, uh, we don't have, you know, the Christian, the biblical worldview doesn't control the airwaves. We don't control Hollywood. We don't control the newspapers. We don't control schools. We don't control universities. Uh, the minds of people who, for whatever reason, are the ones who influence people. Uh, but we have the promise of Yahweh. We have the power. What else do you need? The power of Yahweh. So there's a great lesson here in this chapter how Yahweh does whatever he wants to do. We're told in, we're told in the psalm, for example, that Yahweh is in heaven laughing at people who rebel against him. Uh, it's, it's moving according to the will and way of a sovereign God, and it will end just like he said it would. It's a great lesson then here for us as well that the war with Amalek will continue from generation to generation until finally uh, the kingdom is established. Well, we're going to stop there and uh, we'll be done for tonight. Father, thank you for the great encouragement that we receive from this lesson in Exodus 17. Thank you that we are challenged to have the kind of faith that Moses had, that we are challenged to the work of intercessory prayer. We are challenged to stand and defend against the attack of Amalek, even in our day, knowing that in this challenge, you will give us the resources and the spiritual energy and strength that we need to accomplish what you've called us to do. Bless us and help us in the way that we should go. In Jesus' name. Amen.